Jewish audio on Chabad.org. Good evening, folks. Good morning, good afternoon. Actually, this greeting, good evening, good morning, good afternoon, our traditional opening salutation, is very relevant to this week's parasha. As you are presently here. All right, this is one of the most difficult stories in the Torah because even a cursory or simple reading of the text, simple translation, um, indicates that there are multi layers to the story. Usually, as a story is a story, then you probe its depth in the Talmud, the Kabbalah, the Midrash. And the oral law reveals layers of the story, but in this particular case, the story itself, what, what exactly is Korach saying here? It's complex and multi-layered. The story, of course, is the story of Korach, and excuse my voice, I'm suffering some kind of, I don't know what, you'll excuse it, please. Um, excuse me, that is to say, the master of the voice. Remember his master's voice? Remember that? No? Yeah, HMV. That's what it stands for. The icon of the dog listening to his master. The, all right, but we digress. We digress. Um, the story of, is the story of the ill-fated rebellion led by Korach. Korach first cousin to Moshe, to Moses. He leads a rebellion, this much I'll tell you now. Um, he attracts to his cause several groups, primarily two. In the end, everybody's caught up in it. Everybody. Um, initially, the instigators, 250 of the leaders amongst the Jewish people, members of the Supreme Court. In addition to that, many of the tribe of Reuben, Reuven, and the simple reason for that is because the tribe of Reuben were encamped next to the encampment of Korach and his clan, and many others as well. Now the end, we're fast forwarding to the end. This is what happens at the end. The end, there's um, dramatic punishment or consequence, as we said last week. Remember, all punishment is consequence. There are actually two views about that in the Torah. One of you says it's not consequence, but it does mirror what you did. It's measure for measure. The deeper view is it's not just measure for measure, it's a consequence, which is, of course, measure for measure. You bring it apart. It's a natural result of, of the choice you make. This is what happens. At any rate, the consequences are drastic. This is what happens. In the end, Moses challenges and says to these 250 leaders who are all aspiring to be high priests. One of the arguments was, without pinning it down into one particular argument, was that why is there only one high priest? There should be many or everybody. All should have the privilege to bring the incense. That's one of the, um, the, the, the unique offering that the high priest would bring every day in the temple. 
So Moshe Rabbeinu at God's behest tells them, okay, if you want to do that, then do it, go ahead. And they bring the incense. The end is that these 250 people who bring the incense, they die and their death is they are burned. That's they die. We don't get a lot of detail as to the nature of that, but they're burned. As for the rest, the rest of the tribe of Reuben and large numbers of people that have joined them, led by Dasan and Aviram, old troublemakers from way back. Can you remember the story? Back in Egypt, when Moses had killed the Egyptian who was brutally um, brutalizing a Jew. And Moses kills him by invoking the name of God. Doesn't lay a hand on him. Dasan and Aviram are the ones that uh, report this. So they're troublemakers from way back, and this story is fascinating in its own right. Anyway, they're part of this group. They, and the rest of them, end up being swallowed up by the earth. Literally, it opens up, and wherever they are, the earth tilts like this giant... Um, what's, what's it called? No, you know when you pour something down a... A funnel like a giant funnel and, and there's no escape and they all are swallowed up by the earth that's what happens to them as for Korach himself he gets both both the fire and then he's swallowed up so tonight's question is and it's going to take us on a very deep journey here and I hope we'll do justice to it or we'll, we'll get there Or better put, I hope we'll be on the journey. Um, the question is, <clears throat> how were these consequences as a result of the, of the rebellion? What do these punishments have to do with what they were arguing? Everybody's holy, equality, that's the basic message, the basic argument. Why are you singled out, Moses? Why is your brother Aaron singled out? In the words of scripture, the entire congregation is holy. Why therefore do you exalt yourself over the congregation of God? That's right there, it's the opening words of their argument. So the question is, this business of the fire and being swallowed up, what's the connection? That's one question. Second question tonight. I just told you Korach gets both. Why does he get both? So our sages in the Midrash reveal the following. He gets both because if he only got one, only died because he was somehow burnt, or died because he was swallowed up by the earth, then those who died by fire would say, well he was saved from being swallowed up. And those who were swallowed up would say, well he was saved from... Well the other way around, I'm sorry. Those who would die by fire would say, if he was only swallowed up, he was saved from dying by fire. And those who were swallowed up will say, if he only died by fire, he didn't get what we got. He's saved from being, from being swallowed up. That's why he got both. So everybody would be happy. So the Rebbe says, I mean, for first of all, I mean, the obvious question. Whatever way you go, you go. Now, any of you might argue it's worse to be swallowed up or it's worse to die by fire. At the end of the day, you're not saved either way. What are they, so what are they saying? They didn't say spared this. The words of our sages are, 
that each group would say, but he was saved from being swallowed up, was saved from being burned. First of all, at the end, dead is dead. And secondly, saved, saved from nothing, he's dead. And besides, do you really think that someone who's being swallowed up by the earth or being burnt by fire is thinking about what happens to Korach? Hey, what's happening to him? He's not getting both. You're pretty preoccupied at that moment. Well, maybe if it happens over a few seconds, they get a chance. Maybe even if arguing, for argument's sake, they saw what was happening, it didn't happen instantaneously. That would not be the preoccupation. What's happening to Korach? So what's going on? So that's another question that I've asked. We'll see at the end, it's a very profound um, objection that they have. A very deep one. We'll see that all at the end. And the final question is this. At one point in the narrative, Rashi brings from our sages again the following statement. Korach, who was clever, what led him to such foolishness? And then the answer goes on to say because he had this prophecy of his descendants being very pious and wonderful people serving the temple. And he assumed that they were descendants of him directly. Without going into what he saw, that's not my question now. I'll just back up a bit. Our sages say, Korah, who was a clever fellow, why did he succumb to this foolishness? The Rebbe says, why do we know that he was clever? What indication is there that he was clever? Where is the Hebrew pikhut? It's more than clever. It's a penetrating insightfulness. Where, where is this? We're not told before. We're just introduced to him now in this story. All we are introduced to is the foolishness. So our sages say, Korah was this clever, insightful man. Why did he succumb to this foolishness? Whatever. He, he saw, he didn't see right, and he miscalculated. Whatever the justification is, but our sages are saying he's clever based on what exactly? It must be we derive his insightfulness from the story itself. But you're saying it's foolish what he did. Contradiction. If we derive that he's a pikeach, insightful because of what we're being told, but you just said that's foolish. How does this clever person do a foolish thing? So where do you see his cleverness? That's the Rebbe's question. We'll see the answer all in the end. <clears throat> Final question. And this is going to be uh, the... Uh, the send-off on our journey tonight, which I should tell you in the original talk, is very nuanced and multi-layered. Debra speaks about four levels of unity. Unity, yeah. And in each level, three components. That's like 12 layers here. We'll speak in broader terms, broader brushstrokes so as not to be lost in, in the detail. But here's the question that sends us on our journey. The question is again, notwithstanding, as we said earlier tonight, that Korach's rebellion is complex and multi-layered, one thing is certainly clear, as we quoted earlier. He says, everybody is holy. Why do you, do you exalt yourself over the congregation? Actually, the quote is this. Everybody is holy. God resides in all of them. And why therefore do you, talking to Moses and Aaron, 
assume these positions of exaltedness. Everybody's holy. Equality. So the question is, that's an incredible virtue. Nobody would argue with that. How is it possible that someone who champions equality becomes the symbol of divisiveness? The symbol of divisiveness. Um, Torah says <clears throat> one may not uh, harbor division. It can cause strife and division. Um, be not like Korach. He's the symbol in, uh, in the Talmud, ethics of our fathers. He's the symbol of strife, division, uh, splintering, fraction. How does this happen? Of all people, Korach, I mean, he talked about unity. Okay, he failed, but he failed. Why does he become? And why does it lead to? This is the question. How is it that this quest for unity, and nobody doubts at the end of the day that he was sincere? Although there's layers to that too, but at the depth of it, he was sincere. So the sincere quest for unity somehow leads to not just failed unity, but division. How does this happen? Now the journey. But first, L'chaim. It does help. <clears throat> Especially if it's... No. no, it's water. It's water. No, no, it's water. I'm just saying. Not, uh, it's not vodka, it's water. <laughs> sure that was tried before. <clears throat> Anyway, so here's the story. Level one of unity. Level one of unity is achieved when everybody minds their own business, as it were, and respects borders. How is the uh, how does the expression have it? Healthy fences make healthy neighbors. Is that how it goes? Or good fences. Good fences make good neighbors. One may not enroach on somebody else's territory, the Torah um, commands. And that's on every level. Livelihood, physically, you know, trespassing. God created a world with lots of things. If there's going to be harmony, everybody has to keep to their own particular unique borders and boundaries. That, that's the first, the first level of unity. And we find that reflected in the Torah too. There's Shabbos, and there's the weekday, within the people, you have Kohanim, Levim, Israelites. Holy places, Jerusalem, Israel, within Jerusalem, levels of holiness. In fact, there are ten levels. There are ten levels of holiness that apply to, to space, to land. What I'm referring to, what I just referred to now, which we're not going to go into too much detail, but I'll just tell you this. There are three components that make up reality or existence. Time, space, and rank or level. In Hebrew, olam, shana, nefesh. Olam is space, Shana is time, and Nefesh is literally soul, but it means rank, level. We all exist in these three coordinates, in time and space, 
in a, in a unique um, a unique persona different to the other persona rank, level or nature if you like so we just demonstrated or we just illustrated that in in Torah there's time holy days not holy days and you can't behave in a holy day the way we behave in a non-holy day and the opposite is also true according to one view at least in the Midrash one is obligated to perform labors during the week not just permitted obligated when Torah says six days we shall work it's not you may work it's you should work or more than that you must work man was born to toil so that's time and then of course there's levels as we mentioned earlier the Kohan, the Levi, the Israelite and space the Holy Land outside of Israel in Israel itself many levels of holiness once you enter Jerusalem there's levels as you get closer to the temple so that's the first level of peace but said that's not really peace that's that's just not war when you mind your own business you respect borders you know it's quiet it's only quiet because there's an absence of conflict but there's no real peace in the sense of, if you look at the Hebrew word for peace, it's shalom. Shalom means peace, but it also means whole, W-H-O-L-E, implying a togetherness. So if we're all doing our own thing, there's no war, but we're not together. So it's the level entry of peace. That's how it's got to start. You do your thing, I'll do my thing. Respect. Respect the borders. not yet harmonious just um, what word in English would we describe this state we, we call it pardon a cold peace or functional peace you said functional yeah it's functional but it's not harmonious there's a higher level of peace the higher level of peace is where there is one component of the group We'll soon illustrate this in the human body, contributes to the other. Contributes. So let's talk about um, where do we see this in time, in Judaism. We see this in, for example, in the words of our sages, very succinctly put, he who toils on the eve of Shabbat will have to eat, will have what to eat on Shabbat. So Shabbat doesn't come out of nowhere. It's thanks to the contribution of the work during the week. The end of the Shabbat, what do we do? We make the Havdalah, we pour the wine into the cup, and we're careful to see to it that the wine spills over into the plate below. That's Shabbat now blessing the week to come. Interaction blessing. A give and take. That's in, in terms of what? In terms of time. Where do we find this also in space? Pardon? In space. I'm sure he does demonstrate it. Yep. Well, as Israel provides blessing for, I don't know if this is here or not blessing for the rest of the world an example he gives is the sanctuary itself same idea 
the sanctuary projects blessing and holiness, this space, to the world, and the reverse is also true. The sanctuary is built because the world contributed to it. So it's this interchange and interplay contribution from the lower to the higher level and the higher level to the lower level. Where do we see this in terms of soul or level or rank? There is this concept of sanctify the Kohen. Sanctify the Kohen. When you honor the Kohen, when he is given his priestly dues, he actually becomes elevated in the process. The Israelite farmer, by giving him the mandated contributions, and the honor we give him by giving him the first aliyah, for example, the Torah, actually causes an elevation for the Kohen. So this is a higher level of unity, where the neighbors are not only high by over the fence, but actually exchanging, sharing, um, contributing one to the other, that which the other one lacks. Deeper level of unity. That clear? So, quite simply, level two is not just the border, but it's trans-border. We're still respecting the identity of each part of the, of the, of the mosaic, of the, of the grand picture, but the various parts contribute to each other. Third level of unity. It's more than each part contributes to the other. It's in them coming together they create a transcendent greater whole that's bigger than every part. So take an example of the body. Actually we could, we could have used the body uh, in all of our three levels of unity. Maybe we'll, we'll do that. So level one of unity is where every part of the body does its thing. The eye sees and the nose smells and the ear hears and the feet walk. And that's the way it's got to be. If the eye is going to try and start to hear and the nose to see, it's not going to work. So a healthy body, level one is where every organ of the body does its unique function. If we probe deeper as to the way the body works, it's not just a whole lot of disparate organs living in close proximity doing their thing. They contribute to each other. I see something, I like it. So the feet takes me there. Simple level. Um, using eye and smell. Um, I see something which I'm enjoying and then because it has a pleasant aroma that enhances even the visual experience. The various experiences of the body, the senses enhance, the, each sense enhances the experience of the other. That's level two. Then there's level three. Level three is when all the parts create one transcendent body. The human being has all of these parts and when they're all there, each one, paradox, in its unique place, it's more than just a whole lot of parts that are living harmonious, more than just a whole lot of parts that contribute to each other, it's a human being. There's a great whole here, bigger than the individual part. Which means to say that if one limb is missing, the totality of the human being is missing, and therefore each limb and organ is also missing being part of this, of the human being. 
So this is a oneness, an overarching oneness that is created by all the parts. Clear? On level three. But there's a fourth level. Because so far we're talking about parts. And we're saying you know, all the parts come together and create the great picture. Just to revisit this level again, spiritually speaking, all Jews form one great spiritual body. We've spoken about this in the past. <clears throat> this great spiritual body exists in every generation. And then in the big picture, we kind of step back, there's the great body, the Jewish people, that spans all the generations. The patriarchs and matriarchs being the head and the heart, and we're kind of the toes and the toenails of the great body of the Jewish people. But what we're talking about here is one great body that all of the parts contribute to in making. But then, a recent discovery of science, because it's really a pre-messianic discovery as all of contemporary science is, as we've had occasion to discuss somewhat, that the quantum physics and so on, and the discovery of the DNA and all of this rapidly revealed in the last 50 or 60 years is all part and parcel of the world's evolution towards the era of ultimate oneness. Case in point, we now understand that every part of the body is really everything and one and the same. The DNA signature is present equally, equally in every single part from a slab of saliva, to a piece of brain tissue, to whatever. It's fundamentally one. It's one thing. Not a whole lot of things that create a bigger picture. But that bigger picture is, you know, head and hands, and we're still looking at the end of the day. In level three, we're still saying this is made up of components, but the components make a greater whole. Like the musical notes of, of, a, of a symphony, you're hearing the melody, but there's different notes here that contribute to the transcendent melody that unites all of the notes and all of the instruments, better, all of the instruments making one great symphony. We're saying now level four, no. That the essence of every single instrument is one and the same. In essential unity, at the core level, it all manifests differently, but as we look at the core level, it's, it's the same. Take any part of the body, the entire body is there, in every part of it. That's the kind of unity Korov was talking about. He was aspiring to this kind of unity, where we're not just complementary, let's start from the beginning, we're not just getting along, we're not just complementing each other, level two. We're not just all creating a greater whole, but rather level four, Korach argued, we are all essentially one and the same. We have this core divine essence that everybody shares equally. So you're thinking, well that's true and wonderful and beautiful, so what's the problem? Problem is, Mr. Korach, 
You're right. But you're a tad early. That's going to happen in the Messianic era, and there's a long way to go. Well, back then, not today. A long way to go before we achieve that kind of enlightenment, understanding, and experience. We've got to work through the lower levels of unity first. First, we've got to just respect the borders. Then we've got to learn to actually share and appreciate that you have something that I don't. Then we've got to come together in the great symphony of humanity. This is a progression. Korach wants, I'm ready now for the messianic era. Essence, all one and the same, and that should pervade all of creation. Now, here is the, up, the, the irony of all of, this, of all of this. Because it's premature, it uh, breeds disastrous results. A good thing, too early, is catastrophic. So this is what happens. We're going to get to the punishment. That's, that's what we're getting to at the end. This is a consequence. We're going to get to that. That's exactly where we're going. The consequence of this. So, Hasidus says, Hasidus revealed, Korach isn't the villain anybody thinks he is. On the contrary. He's touching on something extremely profound and true. And it's what awaits us in the Messianic era. An experience of essential oneness that will pervade all of existence, but way too early. Now, this is what happens when it's too early. Here's the thing. It's a little bit, I admit, I, it'll be a challenge, I think, for us to wrap our heads around what I'm going to say next. Try and understand, but I think a sense of what we're going to get. Okay? Let's say this. Let's talk about the individual. We're made up of many components, but to keep it simple for our illustration here, we've got a body and a soul. We have higher faculties and lower faculties. When we are privy to a revelation that we're not ready for, it's too high and we can't assimilate it. It's true, it's a godly one. It's a profoundly spiritual experience. But we haven't prepared ourselves for it. We're not ready for it. We haven't worked through all of the layers and rungs that one is required to before one gets at this ultimate level of unity. This is what happens. The higher part of the person goes on this one-way trip and the lower part falls. Now I'll explain this in a minute, but first the imagery. The imagery of a flight, an extraordinary flight, that engages only the higher part of me, but my consciousness or the body descends. Now, let me kind of explain this. I guess I've kind of seen this in experience to some degree. You know, in Yeshiva. I'm talking about in Chabad where we study Hasidus and you know, there's profoundly spiritual and very deep ideas. If you're going to learn something or be introduced to something that you haven't, you can't really assimilate. 
can't really integrate because you haven't gone through all the steps to be able to understand this and put it into context. But it's true. You're going to hear, you know, language, you're going to hear people talking and an insight, and you're going to fancy yourself to be part of this. What happens is, you go on this, one, on the one hand, it's extraordinary, wow, an extraordinary uh, transcendent experience, very inspirational, but, so the highs are high. But because you've had, you haven't integrated it, because you haven't earned it, because it isn't part of you, your inspiration, the language you speak, fantastic. But then it hasn't engaged the lower part, the daily, the everyday, the mundane, the body. And that not being addressed, seeking its own fulfillment, descends into places the person normally would never have gone. He becomes, for all practical purposes, purposes hypocrite's not the word, but uh, kind of a spiritual bipolar. Huh? That's right. And what happens is, you know, on the one hand, we could take a snapshot and listen to this person's incredibly spiritual. And you see him five minutes later doing such materialistic and sinful uh, 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 things. The same person. How could you do this? It's because there's this dichotomy. The higher part of him is touched, the lower part completely out of the picture, seeking its own high, as it were, finds it in greater depravity. If the spiritual higher experiencing is not something that you have earned, that you have taken ownership of, that is yours, you're feeding off a truth that somebody else or some place has expressed, then the moment of the spiritual high is incredible, but not integrated. And therefore, the conscious, physical part of you, once it's over, as it were, seeking that, that high, is going to find it in physical, sensual pleasure. And the person descends to a behavior that, is, that he would normally never have done. That it might ha make, that's why you need guidance. You got to know where to tread. Just because it's good and deep and pristine and beautiful doesn't mean you should be listening or go attending that. That class, that Fabrengian, that book's not for you. It's going to ignite the, your imagination. It's going to ignite truly the spiritual part of you. But it can't engage the conscious, physical part of you that it's going to need to have that high too, that pleasure. And we'll find it where the physical will find it. And the higher the high, the lower the low. So, Deb explains. I hope we're doing justice to it. This is what happens. In this group that I mentioned before, there are two groups. The 250 leaders, the 250 leaders, heads of the Sanhedrin, the Supreme Court, uh, scholars. And then there were the other group, from the tribe of Reuben, and eventually other Jews also caught on, led by Nodav and Avihu, the riffraff, troublemakers from way back. 
symbolically, again the Jewish people being kind of one entity, the higher level, the lower level, the soul aspiration, the earthy physical component. Hence, the 250, this is what happens. So, they're all claiming, Korach's claim, they're speaking the language of essential unity, it's beautiful, I mean these languages, and it's true. At the core we're all one, and I'm sure he had profound um, imagery and language to explain this truth. That at the core, spiritually and physically, the core, the essence is one, and people were caught up with this incredible idea. We don't need these divisions. No, we don't need. There are no divisions. There's no hierarchy. It's essence. It's one. So what happened? The higher echelon get burned. Fire. They ascend. They go on this trip. They don't come back. And what happens to the lower echelon? They fall deep into the ground. They're swallowed up. Symbolic of the dichotomy, of the division that happens when... We, we're not integrated already and introduced to extraordinary, pristine truths. The mind, the heart goes on its trip, and the body goes on its trip. That's physically what happens. That's the consequence. This is the consequence. The ascending fire. Which means to say, if you looked at the death, you may not have seen a physical fire. You may have. The souls just went out like fire. Seeks to sunder itself from the wick. That was the 250 heads. The others swallowed. And the Rebbe stresses that there are all kinds of nuances here. The stress is not that they descended but they were swallowed. Why is the stress not that they descended? Why the emphasis on being swallowed up? Because you see new subtle point. There is the divine also in the body. The body has a divine energy. So when the higher part goes on its flight of fancy, so the, the body, its physical, here's the thing, the body's physical desires really ultimately the quest for spirituality and in time the body can find its fulfillment in the physical and spiritual as its one. Shabbos, Yom Tov. It's both a physical and spiritual experience. But if the soul, the mind, the heart is going on its transcendent trip, then the spirituality which the body has, seeking pleasure and fulfillment, is going to just descend into crass physicality to find it. So swallowed. What swallowed? The spark of the divine in the body is swallowed up in the morass of, of, and, the, and the bowels of, of depravity and spirituality in the quest for the physical high. That's what's being swallowed up here. Is the divine that's in the body. What is required is the ultimate integration between body and soul through the levels of unity we described earlier till we're ready for essence that will indeed pervade everything. That's, that's the ultimate destination. And that's why we know Korach was clever. It wasn't just clever. Our sages say, who is the Chacham? Who sees? He will sees what 
He sees what will be born. He sees the future. Korach saw the ultimate future and he wanted it now. And that's fine. In fact, at one point, even in the story, Moshe says, strangely, you know what, Korach, what you want, I also want. What do you mean, I also want? He's a rebel. He's the enemy. No, but ultimately what you want, I want. But we've got to work towards that. We've got to get there. We've got to work through the, the previous three stages of unity. Just getting along, contributing to each other, and creating the greater whole, and then ultimately one. But if we're going to experience that too early, this great divide, the upper ascends and the lower descends. And Korach, both things happen to him. Because he's the instigator of it all and the symbol of what he wrought for the higher elements of the people and the lower elements. And now we'll try and explain one of the questions we asked, remember? You know, why did he get both? Because then they would say he was saved from the other punishment. Not saved, he's either burnt or swallowed up. At the end of the day, he's not saved. Spirit, but not saved. But the word is saved. Now we understand this spiritually. Because if only one thing would have happened, the soul ascends, but the body remains where it is, then the body is saved from its descent. If only the body descended, but the soul remained where it should be, not going in its flight of fancy, then the soul is saved. So there really is this concept of if only one thing falls but the other remains where it should be, then one aspect of me is still intact. Subtle point. So therefore, to Korach, both things happen, clearly. In him is demonstrated the great disaster and failure. He loses soul and body. As if to say, for the ones for whom it was, they got burnt, their souls ascended, their bodies did not descend into, into the pleasure hedonistic world. For those that descended into the netherworld symbolically, their souls did not take the one-way flight of fancy. So at least in each one of them, a part of them remained intact. But Korach, the symbol of it all, he is the, he is the complete disaster. The souls ascend, disconnected, and the bodies descend into the world of, of hedonism and pleasure, the bowels of the earth, swallowed up, as it were. Clear? Kind of. So what's the conclusion? The conclusion is, yes, Korach, and one day we'll get there. And that's the destination, that's why I said earlier now on the threshold of redemption, even science is starting to see that the whole body is essentially one. And before that, let's go back, the whole discovery of the atom, that points to the oneness of all things. Solid, gases, liquids. In essence, it's all one building block. Just configurated in different ways. Then we've gone deeper than the atom, and the subatomic particles, and deeper still, and found faster than the speed of light, transcendence. I mean, quantum physics, as we have an occasion to visit, I don't pretend to be a scientist or even close to it, but it's talking the language of, of 
Chasidut, Kabbalah, the language of the divine that we're all going to experience soon. So we're close friends. We're close to what Korah wanted. We are essentially one, but at the same time, till we get there, we've got to be careful to respect the, the lower three levels work by respecting the boundaries. And here the Rebbe says a very interesting thing. Because in citing the examples of where you need boundaries, he speaks of, to give one example, the, the boundary between men and women. The mechitza between men and women. It's the mechitza between men and women that promotes a harmonious relationship. Tear down the mechitza and both get destroyed. As <clears throat> One uses and is used by the other. So he gives an interesting example for this, in a very simple example of to promote unity, you need something to divide division. Fire and water. If you combine fire and water together, then either the fire consumes the water or the water consumes the fire, and in the end they consume each other. How do you combine fire and water? Through the Lamed, yeah. But what are you referring to? Remind me. Ah, right, right. The Vav and the Lamed, yeah. So a physical symbol of that, which is physically, is the pot. The pot on the stove. Water, fire below, creating a harmony. The water affects the fire, the fire... Because of the boundaries, these two opposites are, can exist in a harmonious way and contribute to each other. Precisely because of the boundary of the part. They can come together really close, really close, but it's got to be this boundary. The boundary is removed prematurely, then the end is. Yeah, the end is. Descent this way, or an ascent into a, a transcendent disconnect neither of which is appropriate or healthy in the present time. So, boundaries have to be respected. At the same time, we need to, between men and women and all of the boundaries that God has placed, saying the other day, we've spoken about this, you know, tzniyas, we're talking about tzniyot now, um, modesty, boundaries, the mechitza. So the mechitza is that physical divide between men and women during prayer. Um, because prayer is an outpouring of the soul that's when you need to have the boundary but there's also tzniyot tzniyot is the modest dress so I was explaining what modesty does modesty brings when a woman is modest and let, me, let me phrase it this way Years ago, years ago, this, the modesty meant called Kvuda Bat Melech Pnima, quote from Book of Psalms, the glory of the king's daughter is inward. Centuries ago, or 50 years ago, or 100 years ago, that meant quite literally that the woman was not out there and inward, the home, and that's where the glory lies, etc. Today, of course, particularly in Chabad, women the forefront of all outreach activity, teachers, writers, and 
Every Chabad house is run by a team and often, in many cases, she's more uh, front and center than he is. Many times the case. So what happened to modesty? What happened to this profound verse in scripture that says the glory of the king's daughter is inward? The answer is that it's through modesty and only through modesty that she is, I'll just wait till you got that there. Good, thanks. It's through modesty that she's able to bring the mystery and the aura and the sanctity of female, feminine spirituality to the world. Precisely because she covers and she's modest. Why? Because, and it makes, yeah, I'll tell you, because this is on every level. You know, let's start on the physical level. On the physical level. The, the French know this, I'm told. The true allure, the physical feminine allure is not in what you reveal, it's what you, in what you don't reveal. The moment it's revealed, laid bare as it were, it, just, it loses it at all. It loses the, it, it's the physical thing, but the physical is beautiful because there's this profound allure to it. And the allure is only when it's veiled. And so there's this whole art of how to, it's, it's to it's what tantalize. And the tantalizement, the mystique of it, is precisely in the, in the concealment of it. Remove the concealment, the mystique, the, the allure of it, the romance of it is destroyed. Same is true spiritually. The woman embodies a very profound spirituality that is deeper than the male. It's high, as we've discussed here, and cornerstone of Hasidic teachings. How is that brought to the world? How does she bring that to the world? By being out there, but veiled. She brings with her, with her a sense of, wow, there's something here that invokes this envy, there's something beyond, there's something mystical, magical, godly, holy, innocent. She makes what I'm saying there for a, not just a deep, not just a truer, but a much more profound and deeper impression in the world out there that she engages precisely because of her modesty. That's what allows her inner self through. That's what allows her inner self, which is this divine mystique, this godly transcendence. We've spoken about women embody the being of God. The male embodies the performance of God. She projects the being of God precisely in, through the modesty, through the veil of modesty. Yeah. No, I am saying precisely your point. That's right. But they're out there in a way that doesn't expose themselves. They're bringing out there the mystery of the divine. And you can only bring the mystery of the divine when you are modest in your just dress, your speech, your whole demeanor. That's the paradox. In simple language, she's part of the world, but she's beyond it. And that's what evokes the great awe 
And that's what everybody's looking for. Everybody's looking for God, for the divine, for the transcendent, for the beauty, for what's beyond, what's behind all of this. She brings that sense of, that sense. It invokes that respect and that awe in others. So everybody who lives this way knows it. Knows it. She's much more impactful this way. And what she's bringing is something so deep. And it can't be brought when it's just... It can only be conveyed in a veil. This is true in so many... Look, like, the deeper something is, the more veiled it must be to be expressed. Why is love expressed in poetry and songs, not in essays? You can't write an essay about how much you love your loved one. Barely language. And in language you veil it in, in nuances. It, the deeper something is, the less it can be confined to. The more it needs to be concealed and veiled. Her spirituality is so deep that the only way that the world could possibly have any connection to it, if it comes in the in the, in the veil of modesty, in the physical, in the spiritual, all the layers. Huh? The physical is being covered, so you have to the words and whatever's coming up. Yeah, on a simple level. But, but I'd say even the physical beauty is only revealed through, truly, in, by the veil. The, the, the depth of the physical beauty. The depth of it. And certainly her spiritual depth. So she's very much part of it. But she's not part of it. And that's the beauty of it all. So, boundaries. That's the, me the message we're walking away with today. But with a clear understanding that soon, and we're on the threshold of Korah's vision, his prophecy. The fourth. The threshold of the fourth level. Of the fourth, where the essence is revealed. And we'll see the oneness of God in everything. That's about to happen.